care. We think that babies are a blessing from God, and we believe that from the first cry to final breath, they are loved by God, and so there is absolutely nothing that that baby can do to make us upset. Amen? Amen. You don't agree with me on that. I'll be what I deserve. Because babies are fantastic. But I just know that sometimes it can be... It can be a little bit embarrassing if your baby starts to cry, but you need to know uh, we don't care. We love children. Alright, so uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn into Esther. Uh, we're going to be starting in chapter 2, ending in verse uh, in chapter 3, continuing on from where we were uh, last week. Uh, we're going to continue on our story. Uh, and our story so far has been this. We've had uh, been introduced to King Xerxes. He is the ruler, the reigner over the Persian Empire. Uh, his Persian name is something that I can't pronounce, so we call him by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Xerxes uh, is this massive king. He thinks he is God, or a god. He's that uh, in love with himself. Uh, and so the first week we looked at uh, Jesus is a greater king. He is a greater king than Xerxes. Second week we looked at Jesus has a greater way. His way is better than maybe the way of the world. And last week we looked at Jesus is a better bride or a better bridegroom. And really uh, the way that Xerxes treated uh, not only his existing wife, but after he divorced her, then the women who he decided she was going to marry, uh, Jesus treats us better than that. Amen? Amen. So what I want to do today is right up front, I'm going to be very honest with you, uh, I didn't come up with this myself. In reading commentaries and watching other sermons, I came across this particular, uh, these three things, and they said that the book of Esther is marked with these three things. It's marked with sins, mistakes, and tragedies. And so what I want you to do is keep that in the back of your mind. When I, when I see something that I like, I don't just steal it. I also steal it and give credit because I think that's nice. Uh, but I couldn't, when I was prepping for this sermon series, I couldn't get this idea out of my mind. But if you look through the story of Esther, really it does revolve around sins, mistakes, and tragedies. And that actually uh, transfers into our regular lives as well. When you look at your life, really a lot of things that happen can roll up into these three categories, sins, mistakes, or tragedies. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we move into today's story, the assassination plot of King Xerxes. So this is what we read in Esther chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerusha, or King Xerxes. Yeah, some of you actually think that's the way it's pronounced, don't you? No. Now, logical question, why did these two units become angry? There's a joke in here that my wife said I'm not allowed to make. <laughs> ah, you got it. Awesome. Um, we don't know. If we're being completely honest, uh, if we're being completely honest, we don't know why these guys were angry. We can take a little bit of a guess. Uh, the way the King uh, Xerxes operated is he had his... Uh, his wife's palace, the queen's palace, set the side, off to the side, and then off to the other side of his palace was the palace for his harem, where he kept his lady friends and concubines. And if there were any male attendants in that palace, 
to make sure that they wouldn't uh, fall in love with any of his concubines, uh, he would make them eunuchs. Now, uh, for those who are uh, gentlemen in the room, if someone made you a eunuch, maybe you would become angry. Uh, we, we think that's the reason why we're not given any other uh, explanation as to why these two gentlemen became angry. Maybe they just didn't like the way that Xerxes was king. Sometimes uh, we get upset with those who are in authority or power over us. Sometimes when they don't act the way that they're supposed to act, they don't act in a kingly manner, they don't act in a leadership capacity, we get mad at them. Uh, the answer is never to start plotting an assassination attempt. It's usually it's a little too far for my liking. Uh, but maybe these guys had been upset by the way that they were being led uh, in this flight. And it sort of brought out two, uh, two ideas from this one little passage of scripture that, in all honesty, you could read over very quickly. Those of us who are in leadership roles and have leadership in our life, whether that is in the church or if that is in your work, if you're a leader at work, you need to be careful who you entrust and who you allow close to you. You actually need to be guarded because not everyone can be trusted. Xerxes thought he could trust these two eunuchs, and instead what they did is they, they started plotting his assassination. Contrarily, if you are someone who is in a position near those who are in leadership, make sure you don't just do what is in your own self-interest, but what is in God's interest. These two eunuchs weren't doing what was in God's interest, they were looking after their own self-interest. They said, we don't like this king, we're going to take care of it ourselves. And so just a, a quick note, if you're in leadership, make sure you guard who's around you, and make sure if you're uh, under someone in leadership, make sure that you're following God's interests, not your own. So, verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, who told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So there's a little bit, just in these two passages that I want to break down for you, just a couple of things happen. Uh, so here, first, Mordecai was What was Mordecai doing? Well, remember from last week, he was sitting at the king's gate trying to glean any, uh, any knowledge of Esther and her comings and goings. He was trying to be a good uncle and keep an eye on her, and from one of the days that he's just sitting around trying to get that information, he overheard, uh, overhears this particular Plot, right? <laughs> and as soon as he has contact with Esther, he tells uh, his adopted daughter, uh, there is a, an, an assassination to be done on your husband. He says, look, uh, these guys, I overheard them talking. Uh, I have no standing with the king. I can't come into the king's presence. I can't stand before his throne. I can't do any of that. Uh, but these guys look real serious, and they're about to kill him. Uh, and so he says this to the queen and says, you need to take care of it. Uh, and then it says, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And so not only does uh, she bring the information to the king, she relates who told her the information. She relates how she found out about this. Uh, when did you learn this? I learned this from Mordecai. Then it says, when the affair was investigated, uh, so they go out, and they, they research it, they go and they, they maybe talk to the eunuchs, you know, they would arrest them first and they would talk to them, uh, they would talk to people who knew the eunuchs, they would do a full investigation, and they, uh, they find out that these two eunuchs were in fact trying to assassinate the king. 
It was found out to be so. So it was all true, and the uh, assassination attempt was <coughs> uncovered. So the men were both hanged on the gallows. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, and it was reported in the book of Chronicles. And the important thing to remember for our story is in the presence of the king. Right? So for a lot of things, uh, you don't think the leadership maybe is aware of what's going on around you. Uh, it, it's Scripture takes a certain amount of emphasis to point out that all of this happened and then was recorded in the presence of the king. The king is not a bystander. He's not letting someone else take care of this. He is the one who, uh, who found out this information. Now, the reason I think uh, is the scripture includes this is to make it clear that Xerxes knew exactly who saved his life. At that point, in that moment, he knew that Esther, through Mordecai, had saved his life. It says they bring the entire report. Are you with me? That's going to become very important later. I need you to remember that. Not even later today, a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going back to this. They were hanged on the gallows. Now, how many of you, when you think of gallows, you're thinking uh, old western? You're thinking of like, you know, a raised platform with the little trapdoors and the the, the noose that's hanging down with the lever that drops the trapdoors. You, you're thinking that, right? Okay, good. You're all wrong. <laughs> so, in Hebrew, hanged literally means to hang. And gallows here actually transliterates into the word tree. It means to hang on a tree. Uh, does that sound familiar to anyone? See, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Persians were actually the ones who invented crucifixion. It wasn't the Romans. The Romans perfected it to the ultimate me uh, uh, method of torture and death that they could possibly get. It was actually the Persian Empire that invented crucifixion some 600 years before the birth of Christ. Now, uh, there is debate, even amongst this, uh, whether or not they were just impaled or whether they were actually attached to uh, an actual tree. There's some archaeological evidence that what they would do is they would find a tree stump, sort of take the top off it, sharpen it down to a point, and then hoist the body on, and then just leave the body there. Now this is really important. I know uh, a little bit graphic. I apologize if you don't like this. Buckle up for Good Friday, um, because that's going to be just as graphic. Uh, there, there's a reason why this is important. Whether they were impaled or whether they were crucified in the way that you and I sort of have the mental image that they were crucified is that they were left up in a public space. The bodies weren't disposed of. Now, in a lot of these ancient cultures, you can track through uh, Egyptian, through Roman, through Chaldean, through Babylonian, through Persian, all of these cultures, there is a method of burying the dead. There is a, a method of taking care of the dead in Jewish society. You don't leave a body unattended overnight. Uh, in, in Christian society, as soon as a body uh, has passed away or been promoted to glory, we take care of it. We take the body uh, and we, we take care of it. We put it into, uh, we get an undertaker and we put it into a casket uh, and we make sure that there is honor given to the body. That's what we do, right? Um, that's what they did back in these societies. Bodies couldn't be left alone, they couldn't be left out in public. Bodies were to be taken care of and to undergo burial rituals immediately. And what King Xerxes does is he takes these two individuals, these two units, and either impales them on public posts or crucifies them in a public place and leaves their body where they are 
as a symbol of saying, don't mess with the king. It is an absolute graphic way of saying, if you go up against my power and my authority, not only am I going to take your life, I'm going to take your afterlife because I'm God. Xerxes, I'm trying to let you know over the last three weeks, Xerxes is not a good guy. He is a bad guy. He might do a couple of good things later on in this story, but he is a bad guy. He claims to be God. He claims to have the authority of God. And he says to his people that if you mess with me, if you disobey me, if you do anything I don't like, not only am I going to take your life, but I'm going to make sure that your afterlife is gone as well. Every part of you, every aspect of your soul, I am going to own. Xerxes, bad guy, right? Amen. Let's move on. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadika, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. After these things is a time period of about five years. Now, if you're like me, if you read this particular story, it says, after these things, the king promoted someone. Surely you and I, as reasonable people, would be like, hey, modify, about to get promoted, right? Like, he just saved the king's life. Uh, the king knows it was Mordecai. He wrote it down in the book. The king was there. Everyone knows it was Mordecai to save the king's life. Mordecai gets nothing for saving the king's life. He doesn't get promoted. He doesn't get a, a nice card saying, Dear Mordecai, thank you for saving my life. He doesn't get a Starbucks gift card. He gets nothing, right? Mordecai completely gets passed over in every regards. And instead, it says that the king promoted Haman the Agagite, right? Uh, this is just something that I want to point out. Throughout this entire story, Xerxes is incredibly self-obsessed and self-involved. It's all about Xerxes. He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the one that's like a god. It's all about Xerxes. It doesn't matter about anyone else. It doesn't matter who saved my life, how they saved my life. I'm going to ignore that because I'm the king and I deserve it. Now, if we're being honest, how many people in your life act this way that you know of? Like, it doesn't matter what happens, it's all about them. We would call them the drama queens, right? Man, that person is a drama queen. Amen. <clears throat> Some people are actually in drama. I'm not pointing you out or anything. You're acting. Some people aren't. They think it's all about them. This is Xerxes. Xerxes is the center of this world. He's the center of his universe. Everything revolves around Xerxes. The man has a six or seven foot throne made out of gold, studded with jewels, that is carried into battle with him on top. Like, it's all about Xerxes. He cares about himself, he doesn't care about others. Now, this leads into, this particular passage leads into introducing sort of the uh, the bad guy, if Xerxes isn't bad guy, uh, the other bad guy of the story, this guy called Haman the Agagite. Now, a couple things about Haman. Well, really, first, something about his tribe. Uh, if you were reading through the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, you'd actually come across the term Agagite in them. They were the first people to actually attack the Jews after the Jews settled in the Promised Land. So after they had gone in, done everything God commanded them to do, the Agagites were one of the first people who came in to, destroy, to try and destroy them. There is a huge history of animosity 
between the Agagites and the Jewish people. They don't like each other. They hate each other. They've tried to destroy each other on numerous occasions. Uh, and like the Jews, when uh, uh, the Babylonian Empire invaded the, what we call the Middle East in that area, not only did they conquer Jerusalem and the, the empire of Jerusalem uh, and the Israelites in, in Judea, not only did they do that, they also conquered the, the kingdoms around them, and that included the Agagites, and so both the Jews and the Agagites were carried off into slavery under the Babylonian Empire, and when the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians, the Persians inherited all of those slaves. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so the Agagites and the Jews hate each other, and then it was under the king Sirius who released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, it doesn't say that he released any of the Agagites to go back, so maybe that they're still a little ticked off that the Jews get to go back to their homeland and the Agagites don't. I'm trying to tell you where the animosity comes from. If you don't and you just read the story, you think that Haman is vastly overreacting to something that we'll read in a couple of verses. But I want to show you that there is history and background and a, a real history behind uh, all of these characters, they're not just plucked out of thin air, they're not just, hey, here's a random person. Every single one of them is uh, has a history and a background. It says this, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, that the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, as we have learned in the last three chapters about Mordecai, uh, he does not have a backbone. In the last three chapters, he has not proven once that he has an ounce of courage in his soul. Uh, we know this because he allowed his teenage uh, adopted daughter, his teenage niece, uh, the one that he adopted, to go as a virgin into the king's household and sleep with the king to try and become queen. He lets that happen. Now, how many of you were fathers? How many of you were mothers? If you have a daughter, you would let them do that. No one, because you're all reasonable people. Mordecai doesn't have a backbone. He decides right here, right now, this is where he's going to get a backbone. Haman's going to come in, and first, he's an Agagite, not because of anything else, but because he is an Agagite. Mordecai decides he is not going to bow down to it. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when this spoke to him day after day, this was habitual, this isn't a one-time thing, this is like every day for a couple of weeks. Uh, day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see where the Mordecai's words would stand, if he had told them that he was a Jew. So, day in, are you going to bow to him? No. Next day, are you going to bow to Haman? No. One of these times he goes, no, I'm Jewish, we don't do this. Like, he brings that card into it. No, he would never catch a Jew bowing down to an Agagite. Uh, this, this is something interesting here. He pulls the faith card when it, when it suits him. Um, what we found out about the lives of Esther and Mordecai so far is that they don't follow the Old Testament. Uh, they never pray to God. They never read scripture. They don't follow the dietary laws. They don't follow the moral laws. In absolutely no way uh, do they claim to be Jewish. In fact, both of them are using their given Persian names rather than their given uh, Hebrew names, and so they completely cut themselves off from being Israelites in every single way possible, but until it gets to the point where Haman doesn't want to bow down before an Agagite, this is when he finally pulls the Jew card. 
finally pulls it out and says, no, I'm Jewish. I'm not doing this. It's against my religion to bow down to people other than God. And what you need to know is this decision has consequences. It has consequences uh, from what it by. It's going to have consequences <coughs> within the by Jewish people. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Sometimes, when you pull the faith card inappropriately, it's going to have consequences. Now look, I am a big, absolute, huge believer that your faith should be lived in a public manner. But can I just say, sometimes the best evangelism is telling people that you're a Christian and then not acting like a joke. Sometimes, and I, I'm not blaming anyone, I'm not making eye contact, I'm not doing any of that. Sometimes I've seen people be like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I have faith, and then they're like, no, I don't want that smelly homeless person with me. No, I don't want to talk to the person because they've got a different skin color than I do. No, I don't want to talk to this person. They don't make enough money to be friends with me. I've seen people do that over the last six or seven years in ministry. Sometimes the best form of evangelism is telling people that you're a Christian and then not acting like a joke. Mordecai tells people he belongs to God and then acts like a joke. Don't do that. Don't be Mordecai. Okay? Be like Jesus. Don't be like Mordecai. Moving on, because I'm going to get heated. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. I'll get to that in a second. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. This is the consequences. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. And so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai that he was a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, and what's, what's this last phrase? Throughout the entire kingdom. Right now, King Xerxes rules an area of land roughly the same size as the continental United States. He rules over millions upon millions of people. His standing army is between one to three million people, and that is in scale to the amount of people that he rules over. And Haman plots not just to kill Mordecai, this one person, he says, I'm going to annihilate every single last Jew throughout the entire empire. If you're Jewish, I'm coming for you. Now, quick question based on verse 5. How many of you can't let things go? Haman had a pretty good life at this point. He'd been elected an official. He was ruling over, over satraps, which are provinces, empires. How many of you, if 99 things go right, 99 things go well for you, are good for you, and then just one doesn't, how many of you focus on the one? I'll be honest, me. Me. A church service can go 99% right, and I'll be focusing on the fact that the computer is recording from the wrong input. It was working yesterday. It's not working right now. I'll obsess over that. It doesn't matter that there are new people in our congregation. It doesn't matter that there are kids in our congregation who are learning about Jesus right now. It doesn't matter that there are people here who are learning about Jesus and how much they love them. I'm going to be obsessing over that one thing that goes wrong. Come on, does anyone relate to this? Because if you don't, I'm going to call you all liars. Because you're human. And that's what we do to you. 
Haman can't let it go. And not only that, I think Haman's also a little passive-aggressive, a little more on the aggressive side, but passive-aggressive. He doesn't go up to Mordecai, Mordecai himself and say, hey, Mordecai, I noticed that you don't bow to me. The king said you should. Why aren't you doing that? He goes, no, I'm going to kill all of you. Like I said, a little more on the aggressive side. He's passive-aggressive. How many of you are passive-aggressive that instead if you've got a problem with an individual, instead of going up to that person and addressing it yourself, you're going to talk about them behind their backs, or you're going to talk to your friends about it behind their backs, and you're going to do everything to talk to everyone except the one thing that's going wrong. Some of you will like that. And you need to not be like that. Did I hit on that one? <laughs> Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast Pur, that is, they cast Lot before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Ada. Um, casting lots, Pur is, is where we get the, the word Purim from, which is the Hebrew holiday that celebrates this. Um, in addition to that, that I don't have time to get in, into because I'm already running out of time. Uh, where it says casting lots, it means that they were consulting spirits. They were consulting demonic spirits as to when they would have the power in order to enact this thing. Uh, I'd love to get into that a little bit more. I don't have time, uh, but study that for yourself, uh, by yourself if you have the, the time or the information. Uh, verse 8, And Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law. This is, is uh, Mordecai not bowing down to Haman, so that the, it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business, and they may put it to the king's treasuries. Remember that I said that Xerxes was self-obsessed, it was all about him. What uh, Haman is saying is, I'm going to give you money to let me do this. I'm going to grow your bank account in order to do this. I'm going to make you and the kingdom stronger if you let me do this. Uh, we continue reading on here. Uh, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the month, and an edict according to all that came to command was written to the king's satraps, those are his governors, and the governors of all over the provinces, and to the officials of all the people, for every promise this was uh, went out through the postal service that they made, uh, that the Persian Empire had made, it went out to everyone in their own script, and every people in its own language, as it was written in the name of King Xerxes, and sealed with the king's signet ring. This has gone out. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, which is where the king lived, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman says, let me kill them all and I'll pay you money to do it. He says, that's great, I love money, go ahead and do it. They create a letter, that letter goes out to everyone. 
Postal Service, by the way, who uh, the Persian Postal Service had the motto, uh, neither rain nor sleep nor snow will stop us. So the English Postal System borrowed that motto from the Persian Empire. Does that for everyone? It's written in everyone's language. Everyone is going to know at this time, on this day, all the Jews, young and old, are going to be slaughtered. We're talking about uh, babies that are crawling around on the ground. We're talking about old women who are sitting around knitting or doing whatever old ladies do in this time period. Uh, we're talking about young men who are out in the fields doing an honest day work. We're talking about young mothers walking through the sharing a cup of coffee. I don't know who it was, but these are real people, millions of people that are going to be annihilated in a single day. And it says that not everyone's on board with this. It throws the city into confusion. And where is this coming from? We know Jews, they're all right, a little bit weird, they don't eat pork, I mean, bacon's kind of cool, but, uh, you know, we like them. <laughs> it throws people into confusion. Something that uh, is interesting about verse 15, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be absolutely nice, if, if someone decreed that every Christian in the world was going to be executed, that our friends and neighbors who aren't Christian would turn around and be like, what did they ever do to us? Wouldn't it be nice if the reputation of Christians who literally represent Christ to the world was so good, so uh, steadfast, so loving, that if someone said, hey, we're going to annihilate every Christian, people who are not Christians would turn around and say, don't do that, they're good people. A little bit weird. They get together and sing songs about blood, which is a little freaky, but whatever. Wouldn't it be nice? That was the Jewish reputation. Now, <laughs> I said the story is marked by sins, mistakes, and tragedies. Tragedy. Like the fact that Esther's parents died and left her alone, so Mordecai had to adopt her. Sins. Like the fact that Mordecai and Esther didn't return to Jerusalem when they were supposed to, but instead stayed in the relative comfort of the Persian Empire. That was a sin. Because Isaiah had prophesied that all should return back to Israel, and they ignored the prophet. Mistakes. mistakes. Maybe it was a mistake for Mordecai uh, rather to not bow down. There are mistakes, there are tragedies, there are sins. That's the entire story. Uh, like I said before, uh, sermon series, Esther is not a fun book. Like, I know. We sort of put her on a pedestal because it's one of the only two that bears the name of a woman, and so we think that Esther must be a role model for people, but she's really not. Like, she makes some shocking mistakes early on uh, and tries to do some damage control later on. This is not a fun book. It is filled with sins, mistakes, and tragedies, but there is hope. We miss out on the book because we don't know the scriptural calendar. How many of you, when I read the, the name of the month, knew which month that was? Or, or when this decree went out that the Jews were going to be killed, when it was? What is the eve of Passover? See, in Exodus 13, uh, after Moses has come back from his time wandering the wilderness, he goes to Pharaoh. Uh, if you're over a certain age, you're going to remember Johnson and Heston. You know, let my people go. That time, right? If you're younger than that, it's going to be DreamWorks, Prince of Egypt, 
little less theologically sound, um, but you know, still go with it anyway. Moses comes back to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. He does it a bunch of times. Pharaoh says no. There's a plague. Pharaoh says no. There's a plague. It gets to the very last plague, which uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can find in Exodus 13, and it's the death of the firstborn sons. And what God says to Moses is, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, take that blood, and paint it on the post over the doors of your houses. And when the angel of death comes to claim the firstborn sons, they will pass over your house. That's where the word pass over comes from. Are you familiar with this story? This story is then circulated throughout all of Israel. This is uh, one of the, if not the, most important holiday. This, with the Day of Atonement, uh, are some of the most important Jewish holidays, those two, hand in hand. And they still celebrate Passover today, even in uh, a secular Jewish culture. This is still celebrated almost uh, nationwide. Passover is this massive thing, and it's on the eve of Passover that a proclamation goes out once again saying that all the Jews are to be annihilated. Do you think that this, that the Jews who heard this message, that they were once again on the chopping block, didn't immediately in their minds go, God, you passed over us once, are you going to do it again? The angel of death passed over us once, are you going to do it again? Well, this is greater. The sermon series is called Greater, the story of Esther. And what you need to know is that Jesus died a greater death. We're moving up here. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, celebrating Holy Week. Uh, you know, we'll have Good Friday, uh, and then on April 1st, will be our Resurrection Sunday celebration. Uh, there'll be pancakes. It'll be fun. But what you need to know is that Jesus died a greater death. When Jesus was going to be baptized uh, in the book of John, he approaches John the Baptist, and John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That wasn't just idle talk. There is no word in Scripture that is used carelessly. John the Baptist isn't just using the word lamb uh, because he can't think of another good descriptive way of saying what Jesus looked like. He's using it to show and to demonstrate that where the Jews used the lamb to uh, kill and to use the blood on the Passover, Jesus is now taking that place. So the wrath of God that should be poured out onto you and onto me for our sins instead is going to be poured out on Christ on the cross and with God's wrath is going to pass over those that believe. The, uh, later on in the epistles it says that those who are under Christ are no longer appointed to suffer wrath. It says that those who are in Christ Jesus will no longer be appointed to suffer uh, the debt that you should suffer for the sins that you've committed in your life. And so what you need to know from this book uh, and throughout the entire Bible, the story of the Bible is about God, and it's about God's love for us in the death of Christ. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? We sing this song. We clap for this song. But the reality is, the reality is that we need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, because without the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death is not going to pass us on. And that is eternal death. These Jews, can you imagine what they're going through? They're cowering in a corner. There is an edict that says they're going to be killed, they're going to be annihilated. Every member of their family, from young to old, no one is going to be spared. And they cower in the corner and they 
pray as hard as they can possibly pray. God, you passed over us once all those years ago, and you're going to pass over us again. And what you and I as Christians can understand is that God passes over us again. Because Jesus died a greater death. It is not through any merit of anything that you have done by yourself, in your own strength, in your own power. It is solely through the power of Jesus Christ that you and I can stand before the throne of God on Judgment Day and have him say, no, the penalty was already paid in Christ. And that you and I can then live our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance to the commandments of Scripture. It is not your strength, not my strength, not anyone's strength that can get us through this, but it is in Christ alone. Amen? So as we end our time together today, uh, I want to encourage you to understand that Christ died a greater death. The death that you don't need to die anymore. He died so that we will not die an eternal death. That instead you and I will live forever in the presence of God. Book of Revelation says that uh, God will be our uh, God will be our God, and we will be His people. That we will dwell in His presence forever. That's the end goal. That's where we. If you want to keep your eye on the prize, that's it. Not that we get crowns. Not that we get a mansion. Not that we get any other benefits. The reward of heaven is that we get to spend eternity in the presence of God. We get to spend eternity in the presence of someone who loves us unconditionally. And so remember today, Jesus died a great death that should have been afforded to you, he took upon himself. Amen? Mm -hmm. Let's pray.